Welcome to the Truth CSGO Podcast, Episode 2. Today I'm going to be talking about the ECS Season 3 Grand Finals between SK and FaZe. A little bit about Alu. We're going to be talking about Fnatic. We'll touch on uh, Old Mate Freiburg. And we're also going to have a look at Liquid's new pilot for what seems like an online series about their CSGO team. It's called America's Team Chapter 1. First off, some apologies if you hear some hammering and soaring in the background. I've got some people doing some uh, work next door in a building site. But let's have a talk about the ECS Season 3 Finals, which just happened a couple of nights ago between SK and FaZe. First up, if you're anything like me, you have no idea what the difference between the sort of the different CSGO leagues are, what they, what they mean, who owns them and uh, why you should be watching one over the other. So just a little bit about ECS, which I had to find out myself. It stands for Esports Championship Series. It's owned by Faceit. Faceit is an online competitive site where you can play a bunch of different games. I think there's about seven. One of them is CSGO. One of them is Overwatch. And they started up ECS last year. So this was season three. The first tournament was won by a G2 in June 2016. The second one was won by Astralis, which was in December of last year. There's not much you can find out about the actual details of the company, face it. The CEO is this guy, Niccolo Maston. He's a former uh, private equity banker. And the head of gaming is a former Quake player whose name is Alessandro Avalone. Now, I've been around since the days of Quake, but I couldn't really name anyone else other than Thresh, to be honest. But apparently this guy was a bit of a star back in the day. Face it, uh, raised about $15 million in a funding, in, in a sort of a, a venture funding round last year, or maybe the year before, and uh, has seemed to have gone from strength to strength. ECS as a championship, I'm not sure if I can find any other reason, any more reason to recommend it than others, than say DreamHack. Obviously the reason you're going to watch a tournament really comes down to teams that you enjoy watching play, being at the event. And or a lot of stakes. That either means a huge cash prize or some sort of extra standing in the community. Now, the majors, I guess, are at the moment where that standing is. They're Valve-sponsored tournaments. They have they generally have a larger cash prize than others. Now, the next major coming up is the PGL in Krakow. That's on June 29th to July 2nd. We've got a, a shit ton of minor events according to HLTV, that are happening before then, including if you're in Australia, the ESEA Premier Season 25. That seems to be going on right now and has got a bit more to go. I think that's ending. It's That started on June 4th and it ends on August 1st. This includes teams with names such as Riotous Raccoons, who I think I think they're already out of the competition. But can you imagine Riotous Raccoons versus, say, Astralis at a major? The, so the next sort of the bigger uh, LAN events that are coming up next, first we have ESL1 Cologne, then we have DreamHack Open Valencia, then we've got the PGL Major at Krakow, and then we have the DreamHack Open Atlanta. And they're all in the month of July. So still very confusing. I think maybe next podcast i will do a rundown of all of these events not in exact detail but for instance what's the difference between pgl and esl what's the difference between uh the dreamhack open valencia and the dreamhack open atlanta why should you care about one more than the other i don't know uh so i'm going to find out and hopefully let you guys 
in on that if you're just as confused as me. Anyway, back to this grand final between SK and FaZe. Now, I have to admit, I am a huge fan of FaZe. Something about uh, the personalities on that team really speaks to me. I think partly it's the fact that they're a little bit older. Kerrigan seems a little bit older. Kyoshima seems a little bit older. Um, Alu seems a little bit older. SK have never really appealed to me. There was a few years ago, maybe, or, or a year and a half ago, where Cold Zero said something really immature on his Twitter channel. They don't seem likable, apart from Taco, who actually seems quite nice. Uh, and of course, Fallen, which brings me to the caveat of this whole segment, the caveat of this of everything I'm saying, which is Fallen obviously seems like the nicest guy in CS, in that he's obviously mature. He always looks on the bright side of things and the positive side of things when he's uh, in interviews. Even in some of the uh, videos that SK have released themselves, you can see him pointing out the positive spins, uh, the, the positive aspects of different uh, qualifiers they're at. He's obviously the daddy of this team. And I feel like his positivity sort of wraps them together in a way that other teams other teams don't really have. Now, a lot of people talk about how uh, Carrigan really has made FaZe much more of a contender than they used to be, and it's, that's thanks to his his new leadership. Now, that may be the case, but he hasn't brought to the team the sort of cohesion that someone like SK has. There were a lot of moments in this final uh, which which FaZe um, didn't win. Uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, sorry. But there are a lot of moments in this final where the refrags weren't there for FaZe. They didn't have enough people together trading and they didn't seem to have strategies as tight as SK. When SK were executing a play, you could definitely see, oh, this is what they're doing. They're all going Ivy or they're all going a fast B take. Whereas with with the FaZe, you could look at the minimap and still not be quite sure what exactly FaZe were trying. It might it might might be that there was someone in Ivy, there was someone in uh, A main, and then there were three players. Sorry, I'm I'm thinking about train at this point because that was the last map. And there were three players maybe looking for a pick on B or a pop dog. It was like they were just sort of waiting for the stars to get that entry, and then they decide what to do. Which felt to me like a very different way to play the game than SK were doing. Now look. If you've got players on your team like Nico, maybe that's the best way to do it. I'm not sure, but I feel like they were lacking in that, just that extra cohesion that meant in plays they weren't quite always there to keep any momentum that they got up going. It often meant that there were extra lurkers or uh, stray players who were able to pick up those clutches, but I think that's more... You don't, you don't want to rely on that, you know? It just They just didn't have the same consistency, and that sort of play doesn't give you the same consistency as a team like SK can get. Now, in terms of this issue, I saw them uh, both on the main stage at Sydney as well, and this was obviously, quite obviously, the problem back then. I think they have gotten a lot more cohesive, they seem to be even more comfortable with each other, although they, they seemed like they were having a lot of fun at Sydney as well, especially Carrigan. So I, I'm not sure that this is something they're not aware of. It seems like they probably are. They were playing a little more, they were playing even more um, default-like, to be honest, than they were at Sydney, which is a good sign in a way. It shows that they've they've taken a bit of a breather. They've gone back to basics. They're working on the core of the team rather than just sort of lashing out octopus style in every direction with their star players. Now, Alu got a lot of flack on the second map of this map, uh, on the second map of this game, because 
It was Inferno. He's traditionally not been that great at Inferno. I know there are some highlight clips of him uh, back when he was in NIP, for instance, having some great plays when he was defending on the A-bomb site. But Alu really doesn't seem to be completely switched on all the time to me. And this goes back to watching VODs of him in NIP back in 2015. They're online. If you haven't seen them, Google them. They're on YouTube. You can hear the players talking on the comms. Now, Alu is not uncommunicative. He's not overly communicative, but he's not not talking to the team. But he's a very small presence on the comms. When I saw him in Sydney as part of phase, there were a couple of moments where he was so caught out position-wise that he simply dropped his gun or switched to switched he switched his gun out to his knife and and just stood there sort of impotently while he was shot down. This doesn't tell me that Australis or SK were playing so much better than him. It, it tells me that he, just, he he wasn't right position-wise. He wasn't moving fast enough. He wasn't reading the plays of the other team fast enough. And he just wasn't positioning himself quick enough. Now, there are a few moments on Inferno in this grand final where he did the same thing. Then we saw him become the top fragger in the next map on train. And a lot of people online were like, oh, look, you know, how can you hate on Allo? He's God. He's, uh, he's, he's one of the greatest orpers of all time. Looking at some of his frags on train, they weren't, you know, he, he didn't make these plays because he was so good. They weren't impressive frags. They were just solid and consistent frags that really had to do with SK being caught off guard by the other members of Alu's team that then he was able to capitalize on and catch and you know catch them unawares. There were there were some good defenses of the of the B bomb side. I'll, I'll give him that. There was a great shot of someone's uh, I think it was Taco's legs underneath uh, the train underneath the train carriage at one point. I just, I just get the impression that he's a little bit vague, that he's a little bit switched off. Uh, I'm not making any insinuations here. Obviously, I don't know the guy, but he does give me that bit of a bit of a stoner vibe, you know. And uh, I just don't know if that's good enough. Everybody else seems like they're giving their their all and they're on their A game all the time. Maybe I haven't seen enough of Phase. Well, I guess we'll we'll have a look at we'll, we'll look at it some more and 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 and, and we'll make a judgment later. One of the teams that got knocked out. A little bit earlier was Fnatic, and as you'll know, Fnatic is also one of my favorite teams to watch. We talked about them last podcast in regards to the DreamHack Astro, Astra, Astro, one of those. I think it's a car, to be honest, isn't it? It's a car, whatever. Fnatic looked like they were having a bit of a resurgence and that Olaf Meister was returning to form at the DreamHack uh, Masters. However, Fnatic went on to lose to Liquid, Cloud9 and SK in uh, the ECS Season 3. So it was a momentary rise, unfortunately. I have my fingers crossed to see them do some good things again. What Now, look, one of the things that always really makes me confused about Fnatic and the public response to Fnatic is so much of the bile uh, of the community, so much of the hatred. Let's talk about Flusher. I've seen the uh, videos of Flusher supposedly cheating, supposedly aim hacking, supposedly wall hacking. To be honest, I don't really know what to believe. Some of them look suspicious. Some of them, I guess, can be explained by various things. The guy hasn't been caught. I'd rather give him the benefit of the doubt. He he barely never smiles. He, he's obviously not a consistently happy person. <laughs> I mean, I think he smiled in DreamHack uh, once or twice, which was which was lovely. If someone is really that unhappy, let them be unhappy. He's also a professional game player. So, look, I think a lot of people who accuse players like him for cheating are often jealous. 
The most surprising thing about the public's response to Fnatic over the last couple of years has been the hatred heaped upon JW. Now, I have seen the clip as well of JW refusing to shake hands. I think it was with NIP at like 2014 or something when I think Fnatic was sort of at the height of their powers. But that, that, that isn't really what the criticism or the, the bile centers on. A lot of it centers on actually the JW being fat and being someone with a face that people don't like. Now, if this is not the most immature, mean-spirited bullshit that reminds me of sort of, of being in, 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 you know, 10th grade in high school, I don't know what is. Now, look, I understand a huge amount of the Counter-Strike community are still in high school, are just sort of teenagers with an axe to grind, either against their parents or against society or against their school, whatever it is. I was unhappy as a teenager. You'd be hard-pressed to find a teenager who, who isn't unhappy in some way. But there is no sense to this sort of abuse and these horrible comments online. You know, let's just talk about it rationally for starters. I mean, someone like Snacks is fatter. There's no question about it. Someone like Snacks actually is fatter than JW. So why doesn't Snacks get the, the shit? Could it be that you see Snacks smiling a lot more and enjoying himself a lot more and making jokes a lot more than JW? Well, that could be it. Now, that's understandable. It's uh, We respond more positively to people who smile. And I'll get onto that point a bit when we a bit more when we talk about the liquid uh, the liquid pilot. But what that tells you about JW is that maybe he's a little more insecure than Snacks. Maybe he's a little more insecure about his weight or about his talent or about how his team will do or about how his team isn't doing as well as they used to do. Or you know, it could be about any number of things. So if someone is unhappy in their own life, why would you then pile on, especially to someone you don't know, uh, and make them feel even worse about themselves? What it says to me is there's a whole lot of people out there who are insecure about themselves and looking to alleviate a bit of that, a bit of that, uh, a bit of those bad feelings by dumping it on someone else who they can't see the effects on. Like you can't see that moment when JW clicks onto this video of Fnatic or this fan video of even him, you know, getting a bunch of frags and here are these hateful comments down the top. You don't see him react to that. You don't see that maybe he gets hurt. You know, look, I don't know the guy. Maybe it's like water off a duck's back to him these days. But we're all human and words hurt. And I think it's shit. There's not much, not much more I want to say about that other than give JW a chance. So let's move on to Freiburg. Now, Freiburg did a big interview with Richard Lewis, which, to be honest, Richard has some very good, insightful points sometimes. He's obviously a very smart guy, and I've really enjoyed some episodes of his podcast. This was not his best, unfortunately. I feel like he had a few points he wanted to make and was less interested in seeing what Freiburg had to say that he didn't already know. Now, Freiburg really uh, just sort of cemented his status as one of the nice guys of CSGO. And since this interview, he cemented the fact that he's commenting for ESL1 Cologne. Now, this is this is great. I'm really looking forward to that, actually. Uh, I'd love to see him on a desk again, this time maybe not holding a scepter and a crown. But Freiburg is not a, an articulate guy. Yeah, now, it could be because he's not speaking his first language. But I, I, can't, I just can't see him being a dynamic host. However, you know, to be honest, anything is better than uh, Vendetta and Pimp. Now, yeah, massive props to Alex Machine Richardson, I think his last name is Richardson, for putting up with those two sort of wooden thunderbirds at the Astro Open because they are just, I mean, awkwardness personified. Now, look, don't get me wrong. It's obviously a very hard job. 
I don't think I could do it. Most people couldn't do it. You've got several cameras on you, I assume. It's live. You've got to be not only entertaining, but you've got to be informative and you've got to tell us something we don't know. But those two are just, it's like watching a couple of Pinocchios try to, you know, get out some sort of interesting comment and and, and Machine does his best to keep proceedings lively. So Freiburg, look, Freiburg always, always seems to be open for a good time. He's, he's going to be better than these guys at least. So in that sense, I'm looking forward to it. And let's get on to Team Liquid's pilot they've just released. It's about 20 minutes. They've put it on YouTube on their uh, YouTube channel. It's called America's Team and it's Chapter 1. It's been getting a lot of love. What it is is basically a sort of a rundown of their performance at the E-League. I think it was the E-League finals, which G2 went on to win, I believe. I could be wrong. That wasn't really the focus. What the tournament was was not a huge, didn't play a huge part of it. It was really a a little journey of theirs through the tournament uh, right up till they got knocked out. Now, I assume the purpose of of this sort of content is to build uh, audience engagement, build audience loyalty with the team, uh, build the fan base and get people returning to Liquid channels for their updates on CSGO. And as I said, it's been getting a lot of love. People seem to be enjoying it. There's been props to the editors. Uh, it's doing okay with the views considering it was only released, I think, about five or six days ago. But I think this is a good opportunity to look at why these people who are making content for CSGO sometimes getting it wrong. And look, I don't don't think this is a problem that is going to last. I think as the scene gets bigger, you'll have more people entering it from different professions with different skill sets. But this pilot is sort of illustrative of a larger gap that is currently in the Counter-Strike professional scene. And that gap is the importance of story. Now, I touched upon this last week when we were talking about Virtus Pro, but The reason a lot of people, myself included, watch Counter-Strike, professional Counter-Strike, is not because we're interested in seeing another match. The reason we watch it is because we care about the players and we understand the stakes. Now, what do the stakes mean? The stakes mean a reason for a victory mattering. So, let's, for instance, let's say... uh, if you talk about Virtus Pro, right, and this clash for cash, or, or, or even better, the the last major that Virtus Pro played at, where Australis did beat them. Now, one of the stakes that we knew as fans was that Taz had been promised a Mercedes Benz if he won this tournament, right? And a lot is said online about how, oh well, you know, a Mercedes in America is no big deal, but a Mercedes in Poland is like, you know, feed your family for life type thing. Whatever, whatever, whatever truth there is to that, the fact of the matter is we knew that the stakes for Virtus Pro were a fucking Mercedes, right? Above and beyond this sort of cash amount. And, and, and let's be honest, these days cash amounts, are sort of, they sort of blur into each other. No one really cares if, if the tournament's being played for 250 grand or 500 grand or 750 grand. At the end of the day, that amount is always split up in a way that we don't really, as an audience care about right what we're interested in is the emotional stakes for people this is the same with any sort of story that hollywood or novelists have been telling since the beginning of time or playwrights whatever it is you need an emotional stake for your hero right now where these guys just to bring it back to this liquid pilot where they've gone wrong or, or what the opportunity they've missed here is giving us any sort of emotional stakes 
for these players going into this tournament, right? Now, that could be uh, some reason why this tournament in particular means a lot to one of the players. It could be why the cash prize means a lot to one of these players. It could be, for instance, Twist, who's a new player in the team, uh, really wants to uh, prove himself, you know? Is he, is, he, is he in a sort of a probation period? Uh, are his parents, you know, unconvinced that this is the right uh, profession for their son? And he really cares what his parents think? The easiest way to say it is what will happen if these people don't win? What will happen if they're not victorious? What will happen if they lose this match? What will their emotions be if they lose this match? What does it mean to them? So if Twist... Twist's approval of his parents is the most important thing to him, which, you know, may be understandable. We've all, we'll grow up wanting to please our parents. They're the first people we want to please. If that sort of, uh, if those stakes for him are the most important thing in the world, where we see his parents going, you know, we're not sure about this Counter Strike. This is his last chance. If he doesn't get this, you know, we're going to very firmly suggest that he goes to med school and we're going to pay for it, you know? And then we see Twist going, well, uh, I love my parents, and, and but I also love CSGO, right? Now we've got a story. Now we've got some stakes. We've got some emotional stakes. We know if he loses this, he'll have to make a very hard decision as to whether to keep playing CS and disappoint his parents or give up the sport he loves and do the right thing by his parents. Now, obviously, that may be a little more manufactured than or, or, or larger than either he, someone like him, is willing to talk about or whoever's making these videos is able to uncover in whatever time they've got to make these videos. But this is the sort of thing that they're going to need and that the Counter-Strike scene is going to need, the esports scene is going to need to really get in a larger group of people because you start telling a story like that You've got universal values, right? My fiancé can go, oh, shit, I really feel for the guy because, hey, I wanted to impress my parents when I was young too, you know? And she has no interest in Counter-Strike. What this does is get us emotionally invested in the players who are playing. Because right now, there's basically no personality in any of these players that is shown to us. There's a few jokes from JDM. He seems to be having a little more fun than the others. But on the whole... There's sort of very little for us to identify with in terms of these players. And what that means is when they come to a match, say, for instance, against North, you see a bit of North in this, we don't really know the difference between the, the players from North and the players from Liquid. Now, don't get me wrong. I think they've done a good job of identifying Liquid as America's team. I think that's a, that's a, that's a pretty savvy marketing ploy because what that does it, is it, it loops in a whole lot of uh, CSGO fans who are also patriotic, right? Because if you go, well, Liquid's America's team, but someone's a fan of Optic, then there's a part of them that goes, oh, shit, well, if, if Liquid's sort of the American team, I guess I'll, I'll go for Liquid. So I think this is a very canny move. However, it only gets them halfway there. And I think it's telling, to be honest, that a lot of the, co- and a lot of the comments in this YouTube video points, point this out, that Zeus is actually one of the ones with the most personality or whose personality comes out the most in this video and that's simple that's because Zeus is demonstrating a little bit of fucking hot blood you know you can see he really wants this and he's putting in the effort what we get from the others are a sort of drab uh, bone dry commentary on the state of things I don't get me started on a leash like 
Look, if the guy genuinely has no personality, fine. Cut him up in a way so we understand the stakes of what he of, of him playing in this match. And you could do that. You could do that with music and you can do that with commentary because there's been a lot of commentary about Elise. You could grab a, a, an audio from, uh, an audio grab from Thorin, for instance, saying, you know, Elise is the best player in, uh, in, in, in North America right now. Now, what you've got at stake there is the respect of a very well-known commentator in the CSGO landscape, right? If Elise wants to remain the best player in NA, he's going to have to win this tournament, right? And all you need to get is a grab from a leash going, it's really important to me that I'm considered the best player in the North American League or something along those lines. Then you go, all right, this guy's at the top, right? In a sense, he's at the top of a mountain. Obviously, NA is not the mountain, but it's a mountain. What's at stake now is that his sense of identity is caught up in that. And if he loses this match, he loses a sense of his identity, right? And identity is important to everyone. Hence, some emotional stakes. I think, look, as I said, I think this is going to get better as the scene matures and as other people enter this arena from other disciplines like filmmaking, uh, like writing, like journalism. We're going to get a whole lot more people who are better at telling these stories, right? You had a bit of this with the Gamers show, which was all those Swedish players living in a house. You had a bit of that sense of storytelling, but to be honest... Really not as much as you would have liked. And look, I know it's hard. Gamers, by definition, are not really the types who are outgoing. They're not interested in creating a huge, a lot of, a huge amount of drama. You had a little bit recently between Config and Kenny S or G2 and North, which was, let's be honest, a little bit of a beat up. But it needs more than that. And I think we can learn a lot from, from other sports that are not taken as seriously as real sports in the same way. For instance, like wrestling, where a lot of it really comes down to everybody sort of agreeing that a huge part of keeping this the audience entertained and keeping the viewership and which you know which adds to all the sponsorship and events etc which keeps the scene relevant and exciting and entertaining and everyone employed is creating and crafting and maximizing and uh, emphasizing the storylines between players who's the villain for this week who's the uh, hero and uh, what are the emotional stakes? If the hero loses this, he loses his respect because such and such previously disrespected him, etc., etc. Now, this is one of the reasons why the FaZe versus Stralis match at IAM Sydney was one of the most exciting because you knew that the stakes for Carrigan were personal pride. Here's the team that kicked him, got in glaive, went on to huge success. Now he's back with another team. And the rejects, the fucking underdogs, are taking it to the team that kicked him, right? That's some emotional stakes. Even if even if that wasn't how Carrigan felt, even if Australis didn't kick him and he left because he was sick of him and he's an asshole, I don't care. That's the storyline that puts me in the seat at that event, that puts me uh, in front of the computer when that event is streaming. So Liquid, if you're going to make more of these videos, I want to see some personalities. I want to see some emotional stakes. I want to know why Zeus wants this match wants his team to be the best in America. I don't, I don't want to see this sort of casual joking about or recap of what we can find out from looking at the statistics on HL TV, right? We can see that they lost. We can see how many rounds they lost in and how many rounds you know they lost by. What I want to know is, who the fuck are your players? Why should I care about them? Warming up. Now, one of the things that Boomio has recently come out with is their own sort of pre-fire mode which is great. 
I haven't played it yet. Uh, I don't subscribe to Boomio. I may do it in the future because a couple of their other training modes sound really good. And they're building a lot of great content. But the pre-fire mode actually exists in a couple of workshop maps. Well, there's actually quite a few now. It's made by a guy called uh, Yerba, I think it is. And I often use it after a bit of aim warming up. And the reason is, what it does is set set up a whole lot of bots in classical sort of peaking positions in various maps. And you can go through with whatever gun you choose against a timer and try and shoot them all down, right? The difference between this and deathmatch is that you know you're moving in one direction. You're using only specific parts of each map. So you can choose, for instance, you know, uh, A main on Mirage or mid on Mirage or B apps on Mirage. And what it does is start getting you checking every single angle in a way that not only makes you more cautious and alert, but you build up speed as you do it, trying to beat the time. So you become very, very efficient at clearing out areas, which is not something I'd ever really practiced you know in warming up this really helps you get in that mode of being ultra alert what i would be wary of if i were you you know if you either doing this or you get into this after listening to this make sure that you also do an aim warm up because without that all you have are these sort of hair trigger reactions without that aim control which i feel like you really need both of them to complement you so if you haven't checked out those go into the workshop Type in pre-fire. I think we've got cash. There's mirage. Uh, there's definitely overpass. Uh, I think there could be one more. Maybe oh, there's a cobble one. It seems like he's working on some more because uh, on his on his page he's got nuke. I think is uh, in progress and maybe one or two more. So have a look at that if you haven't had a look. And the last little thought I'm going to leave you with is a little fact which I just found out by doing a little bit of googling, which I had no idea about. Dreamhack is actually 100% owned by a company called Modern Times Group. That's MTG. They're a Swedish company. And the funny thing is MTG also owns 74% of ESL. So two of the biggest CSGO and esports tournament organizers are actually owned by the same company, which tells me either one of two things. One, that this company is going to basically dominate the scene in the next five years because they can control such a large amount of the events. Or two, DreamHack and the ESL competitions are somehow going to merge because in some ways they're competing with each other, even though right at the moment they're not occurring in the same time. In some ways it would make sense to put your eggs in that one basket and not sort of cut into your viewership and make sure you get all the best teams for the tournaments when you want them so there you go that's a little thought thanks for listening and i'll see you next podcast